0: Hi, today on the Irish Tech News Podcast, uh, we're continuing our theme of speaking to some people who are at the forefront of a lot of interesting uh, R&D developments and support of R&D in Ireland. So I guess, first of all, who do we have the pleasure of speaking to today?
1: Hi, So I'm Owen. I'm a scientific consultant in KPMG's R&D incentives practice.
0: Okay, cool. So I guess, um, first up, uh, yeah, what, what's your own background? And has it been a logical progression to the role that you do now?
1: Yeah, on, on first sight Simon it it might seem a little bit, I suppose, unusual for a um a scientist to, to have progressed to, to working at a, a tax and accountancy firm. Um but there is very much a logic to it. Um and I suppose to, to start a little bit about my, my background, I studied for a degree in physics and chemistry of advanced materials in, in Trinity. Um, in short, that's material science and then I went on to study for a PhD in chemistry in the Amber Centre in Trinity. I then worked as a research fellow for for six years in the Advanced Microscopy Laboratory, which is a uh, which is also part of the Amber Centre in Trinity. So I suppose I have 10 years' experience in performing R&D on the ground, so to speak. Um, and then in terms of how that translates to a tax and accountancy firm, well. The area I work in is advising and assisting our clients, which are companies based in Ireland, on their research and development activities that relate to the likes of the R&D tax credits, the knowledge development box, and the national grants infrastructure. So what I do, I suppose, on a day-to-day basis is leveraging those 10 years experience in the lab where I have a good handle and appreciation of the trials and tribulations of of, of how hard it is to do R&D. I leverage that experience talking to our our clients on a a daily basis, this was bridge the gap between um, engineering and scientific R&D to um, tax technical, um, in terms of the R&D tax credit or or the knowledge development box, let's say. Um, So, the experience I gained during those 10 years in in the R&D lab is not just in academic R&D, that was a big part of it, it's also in industrial R&D. So, that kind of heterostructure of different flavors of R&D have really helped me um, to assist our clients in developing their um, approach to the R&D tax credits um, and how to present their work in that sense. So I suppose on first sight, it does. It is very strange for for a scientist to work for a tax and accounting firm and still practice science in some way and talk about science and engineering on, on a daily basis. Um, but we are in the R and D space. We're still there, and it's 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 the interaction between tax and, and actual R and D. Um, so that's that, that's where the the, the the logic kind of falls into it. So um, and here, look, looks, I'm, I I very much enjoy the job, and it's um, it's great just talking to kind of companies doing great R and D in the country like on on a daily basis
0: yeah look and that makes sense and it puts you in a good position um with with the fact that you've had uh, 10 years of you know being very much at the coalface of cutting uh, cutting edge things happening how, how much and how fast has things changed over the last 10 years from your perspective
1: it's a good question simon and i suppose things have changed at different rates depending on the entry that 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 you're looking at Um, i suppose i would work a lot in the in the pharma med device sector so broadly speaking within those industries the big change over the last five ten years has been very much in the digitization of those of those industries um and automation um, in those industries so we take pharma I suppose as, as a first point to call the development of um automated and really heavily automated processes that would typically have been quite hands-on and on manual um That's been a huge development in that area over the past um kind of five five or ten years. And the reason behind it is to make everything more um more sustainable, have better yields, better quality of, of product, and do it do it do it a lot quicker. There's also been a kind of a shift towards niche drug development, so really bespoke targeted drugs for um I suppose quite exotic conditions. Um and that area, there's been, I suppose, a lot of development around modular and, and, and portable factories, so very much small-scale um, processing equipment that can be um, disassembled and moved to a different site and reassembled and, and and scaled up very, very quickly. Um, so, I suppose, designing and developing generic-type equipment sets, where typically there would be very, very specific equipment sets. So, that's been a development in the farm industry over the past, kind of, um, kind of, Five or ten years, in terms of the med device industry, again, digitization has been has been a big one, but even more so, personalised um devices that are would be let's say in situ for improved remote diagnostics, let's say in real time monitoring of 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 the body um that feeds back to a monitor, let's say with the patient or indeed with with the physician, um, but what I've seen recently has. Very much been um, at the forefront of R and D has been regulatory changes. Um, and on first sight, you might think, well, regulatory changes—that's more of a legal thing. How does that impact on on R and D? But it very much impacts on 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 how a company can develop devices in terms of the materials they can use, in terms of the um, the bio burden. Let's say that that um, that those materials might have have an impact on. So that has been a, a very big one. Um, in terms of other industries, so I would work a lot in so those mechanical and materials engineering as well. I have a lot of clients in that space. And I suppose the the advancements in those industries over the past kind of five or ten years are supposed a little less obvious um, or a little less dramatic, I suppose. And they've been more around the change in, in, in standards, in ISO standards let's say and how can companies adapt to meet those new standards um, and what processes they have to develop or test methods they have to develop or materials that have to develop indeed to so meet those, those standards. And I suppose within the materials engineering and mechanical engineering space, that very much feeds in to the med device sector as well. And the med tech sec- sector in, in general. So what I've seen as well is, is kind of a knock on effect and um, a a material or test method that um must be adapted or changed for a material science or materials engineering company who are just producing material that then has a knock-on impact going into a, a med device company um yeah so that's that they're the kind of the, the main changes i suppose there's also been a lot of um of, of recent developments around i suppose supply chain diversification and, and sustainability especially as as a result of covid where um material and raw material supplies might have might have been affected or impacted by by um lockdowns and, and so forth so what i've seen in a lot of companies is um especially in the pharma and biopharma space is diversifying their supply chain and again it's kind of but well, how does that impact on 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 r and d Well, if you think if you're changing a a raw material or a technical technical grade material coming on site, if it's coming from a different source that might be an organic source, let's say, the impurity profile might have changed. So there has to be developments around that um, in terms of how it can be processed into a final drug product or or so forth. So, look, there has been, I suppose, some major step changes over the past, yeah, like 10, 15 years um, in Definitely in the pharma and med tech sectors, right? Um but then also more subtle change in the materials engineering um kind of kind of sectors. So yeah, here look, it's a very exciting area to work in because as you said, we're constantly talking to engineers and scientists and our clients at the coal phase. So they are at they the fingers on the pulse really um, with the latest developments in, in, in their industries. So from that perspective we're actually really lucky because we get to see you constantly get to see the the latest developments. Um, so yeah, look, there's I suppose there has been a lot of change over the last yeah ten ten or fifteen years. And again, with with COVID, with Industry Four I can see a lot changing in, into the future as well. So um, you know, it it is a great sector to work in.
0: So look, I mean, as you were outlining that, you know, and I think I think we can all think back to you know how analog some things were twenty years ago to fifteen mm-hmm. years ago. Ten years ago, so uh, in that way, it, it makes sense that things are moving and evolving faster. So, so walking that one through, does that mean that we are seeing faster rates of innovation and insights? And 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 does that make it v- very difficult to to stay on top of R and D because uh, there's so much bubbling up so quickly? Is that a fair observation?
1: Yeah, I think that's a that is a fair observation, Simon. Um, and. I suppose when we look at these things we always go back to the law of diminishing returns we have to put more in to get less out um but what i've seen within our clients is that um they very much much book that trend in, in a lot of ways and the rate of, of progression has actually increased or the rate of innovation has actually increased in a, in, a, in a lot of a lot of my clients um and again i get to speak to, to the engineers and scientists year on year so i can see the progression of, of 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 the projects and get a good handle on them and um, and where they might go go in the future um so yeah in terms in terms of, the, of of the rate of change um yeah look as i said earlier on there are having huge advancements over, over the last 5 or 10 years and i think that will continue at pace um and again if we think to industry 4.0 the digitization of of um of different sectors heavily automated sectors so again that will kind of speed up let's say the innovation life cycle <clears throat> but i also think there's a another angle to it as well i suppose simon and that's um ireland's knowledge economy right so we're very good at producing really high-end scientists and engineers highly qualified um experts subject matter ex- expert experts and um, a lot of expertise in that, in in, in a multivariate um, areas of science, right? It's not just farm and biopharma, it's also med device engineering, software indeed as well, and um, uh, food scientists. There's, there's a very broad spectrum of expertise that we're really good at producing um, good scientists and engineers for. But in addition to that, we're very, very good at attracting talent from abroad as well. And that's something I saw very much in my academic days of um, multidisciplinary teams that were from every corner of the globe and i also see that in our clients right and you can see that there's really high-end talent being attracted from abroad and um, into the, into into the country
0: okay so so in that context um with what you do now uh wh- what what's the typical day look like i mean are you are you being you know is it a bit like doctor who and you're being thrown you know new things you've never been seen before or are you advising or or how do you engage and help with the people you work with
1: It's a little bit about, I suppose, Simon. There's things that I would have never come across before, and I suppose that's part of the excitement of the job. But there's also a lot of things that I would have seen before. Um, I suppose we would speak to a lot of different companies in multiple areas of science and technology, so we would have a good handle on on industry trends. Um, I suppose in terms of what I do on the ground, I speak to our companies doing R&D, um, on a daily and, and, and weekly basis. So I suppose no day, no week and, and no project is, is ever really the same, to be honest. Um, and that's the beauty of working in this area where things are constantly changing, constantly evolving, constantly progressing. Um, so there's never a never a boring day, um, that, that can be said for sure. Um, in addition to that, I suppose, it's, it's really a quick end of staying on top of of all the industry trends that um that we work in and the reason is because we get to talk to our clients all the time and they are very much at the forefront of the of the latest r&d um, and they're the ones doing it on the ground so we're lucky in the sense that we always have our finger on the pulse um and and as i said that's, that that's the beauty of the job um yeah we can read the scientific literature and in, in journals and so forth but speaking to our clients really allows us to keep our finger on the pulse and and that's something i I really enjoy
0: okay so so and so with the year that we've had with the pandemic and the lockdown um has it changed the way you work and then going forwards uh how how will you operate is like has the last year made you do things differently and and now that we can see uh you know an easing of lockdown and stuff uh will you continue to do it differently or, or or what will it look like
1: yeah, there has been a lot of change over the past um, 18 months. In terms of our industry, we would have typically visited our client sites and have seen the infrastructure to some extent I sat down with the engineers and scientists and spoke to them directly about their research. And I suppose over the y- last year and a half, that has understandably all gone remote, right, um, like a lot of other aspects of life. You're running everything through, through video chat. Um, but one thing I've noticed for our clients, they're versatile and indeed adaptable they've been, maintaining the cadence of their projects under really, really tough circumstances. We're actually even getting into the labs or on site has been a major challenge. Um look their resilience, it's it's really been incredible and it's really encouraging to see how dedicated um companies have been to their R and D over the past eighteen months. Where it might have been easier just to kind of to, to put it on hold for a while. That just hasn't really happened for the most part they've, they've soldered on and soldered through and um, i think moving forward then there will be some appetite to maintain remote meetings i think uh, t- to some extent but what i really look forward to is getting back to visiting our client sites and speaking to the or the experts face to face but look i think there will be a mix of remote style meetings and um, but also but also getting back to seeing our clients in, in, in person and um, so when, when speaking to fellow scientists and engineers in person a lot more tends to fall out of the conversation um, and tends to go in in, in different directions that that you might not not have expected
0: mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah you can only go so far with that degree of interaction um mm-hmm. for, for for those that know less about this uh wh- in what, what 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 things does Ireland do well in, in the context of the things you look at? And then and, and what products or innovations are you excited about?
1: We are very strong in the medical technologies and, and life sciences sector, I suppose, I suppose, Simon. You can see this with large multinationals over the past 20 or 30 years or so, basing their manufacturing sites in Ireland. But more recently, and, and something I've seen over the past couple of years in speaking to my clients, is that there is kind of more and more the case now where multinationals are transitioning their development and core R&D work to Ireland and I suppose this is a real uh, scout's badge to say that we're not only strong on our manufacturing expertise but we're also very good at the research the development the innovation side of the house that's that, that that's been a real real benefit on the flip side of that We've also seen a boom in our indigenous SMEs and startups, especially around medtech, right? Um, we have these med device and pharma hubs kind of dotted around the country, filled with indigenous firms, and it's great to see. Um, <clears throat> so it's in that mind we're really well positioned, especially in the climate that we're in now, um, where there's a massively increased focus on health, and indeed you can see that in the news and even chatting to people outside. Outside the coffee shop in, in the queue, everybody is a, an epidemiologist now, right? Um, people have a way better handle on how drugs are developed now and even on, on clinical trials and you kind of overhear conversations of, oh, it, it, it's gone to phase one trials, it's gone to phase two trials now and phase three trials. Oh, it's it's gone for regulatory approval. These are conversations now that we hear kind of casually where two years ago, this would have been completely alien, alien to most people. Um, would have been weird outside the coffee shop to, to hear people speaking about the European Medicines Agency or, or, or indeed the FDA, whereas now it, it's commonplace. You're going kind to of hear it on a daily basis. Um, here look, Ireland has positioned itself well in terms of life sciences and medtech sectors, in terms of, of RD&I, and we are really good at translating our RD&I into I suppose, hardcore IP. Um, and We're very much known for that. So this was long-term from an R and D perspective, I think we will recover from the pandemic in in a very strong position position, um, and it's because we have such a strong knowledge economy and we also have robust infrastructure um in place to support R and D.
0: And I guess, like you say, um, uh, there is um. More informed conversations, and people understand mm. that you know we are kind of living in, in a real-time scenario where where you know an Indian variant to the the virus comes out, and people then discussing, okay, well it has 88% efficiency if you've had two jabs, but obviously the sample size is only X, and that people understand that you know it, you can't just make simplistic statements that you know that vaccine A will be very variant Y because it's more nuanced, and and, we, and and we just don't have enough data yet. So yeah, like you say, I think it does enable you to have more sophisticated conversations with people. Um, with with you and what you're doing, um, how, uh, I guess, what sort of companies are you looking to hear more from and, and then how do they go through the nuts and bolts of engaging with you?
1: Yeah, we have a multidisciplinary team, Simon, and we work with clients from a large spectrum across the science and technology industries, from pharma, to biopharma, med devices, to food technologies, to materials engineering, semiconductor industries, to construction and, and indeed software. Um, and we work with these type of companies across already tax credits, the knowledge development box and indeed um, grant incentives. Um, so we can see from our client portfolio that we have a lot of experience across the RD&I space. Um, often we see RD projects that span multiple fields of science technology and the beauty of our multidisciplinary team is that I can look across the office or, well, indeed now, I can pick up the phone and tap into a colleague's expertise from another d- discipline. So that might be speaking to a PhD in microbiologist on the phone, getting in touch with a mechanical engineer, or indeed an expert in, in automation. We have a automation specialist on on, on our team, or indeed in the, in the software space. So <clears throat> we're very lucky in that sense. Um, in terms of, of how to engage with us, Simon, there will be links to KPMG's r incentives practice website linked to this interview um, where you can find lots of useful information about the r tax credits, the knowledge development box, um RD&I grants, and I grants, and indeed how we can help in, in respect to those. And as I always say to the people that I might be talking to about our services casually or indeed formally during, during meetings, look, just reach out, get in touch, send us an email, just, just give us a call. We're always happy to engage. I think the important thing is to ask the question of how your project might qualify, um, for the already tax credit, for, for example. And look, what's the worst that can happen? You know, if if it goes any further than that, great. You've unlocked a potential opportunity to claw back a quarter of the of, of, of the expenditure on your project. Um, and I don't know about you, Simon, but I would put your hand off, um, for twenty five percent back on a, on a big purchase back back in my pocket. So. Hey, look, there are plenty of opportunities around the tax credit, and indeed, ordinary and I, it in general.
0: It's much like the VAT op- and opposite. You know, if you paying twenty three percent tax on top of everything for that is a real drag. So, yep, if you can do the opposite and get twenty five percent back, yeah. Um, with with what you do, to some degree, uh, you, you, you're almost like a futurist because you're getting to see things that that could be coming down the line. So, I guess. How do you uh, remain uh, informed and up to date? And then also w- w- with those insights, um, I guess, w- what are you excited about in in these sectors in the next three to
1: five years time? Yeah, it's a really good question, Simon. I suppose the way I would stay on top of the latest R&D trends would be by reading the scientific literature from the likes of the Nature Publications, Science Bank Publications. I suppose I also like to read more journalistic side pieces in the likes of the Physics World on the, the in the mainstream media, and um, so those are all kind of great resources of information. But as I mentioned earlier on, we are very lucky that we can keep our finger on the pulse by talking to our clients because they are at the call face doing the R and D, and it's the nature of the job that we're discussing their latest developments um, th- through our work, um, and and. I suppose it's not just a retrospective discussion of their R&D but from a strategic perspective we would discuss kind of through a forward-looking lens so to speak on what's coming down the line in kind of two years what's coming in five years like what, what's the kind of the 10-year plan and how can we frame the R&D and I incentives around that plan and um, be it potential grants that they could apply for and um, the r tax credits R and D leveraging any IP that might be generated through the, the, the knowledge development box. <clears throat> so yeah, I suppose Simon, mean, that's how I would stay, I suppose, informed of the latest developments um, in R and D it was in terms of what I'm excited about coming down the line. It's definitely around personalized medicine, for sure. Um, and that's not just in pharma and biopharma, but also medical devices as well. Um, and the improvements that we've seen, um made in the likes of kind of 3d printing let's say for for implants has has really been astonishing um, you and you can almost imagine a scenario now where a patient's hip is being scanned in a ct and in real time next door there's a 3d printer that's fabricating a bespoke metallic hip implant and um, as it's being imaged and almost kind of fitted during surgery in in the same day so they're the type of things that are almost be- approaching a reality now so that, that's really incredible Um, yeah, so there's those type of things that really excite me. It's the digitization, um, of, of multiple industries and indeed personalized medicine. Um, and I know it's been a big boon for the last 10 or 15 years, but I suppose we're really starting to reap the rewards of that now. Um, and yes, look, one of my big passions is 3d printing mainly because it's just really, really cool. Um, so. Yeah, I suppose personalised medicine is something we're excited about um, in the future.
0: And I remember like about three to five years ago, there was a lot of hype about 3D printers. And you could see the use case that if you could have one in your house that could print in a variety of materials, metal, plastic, uh, whatever is relevant, appropriate to what you need, uh, Mm -hmm. you could see why it'd be super useful. for when you break something that you don't then need to go all the way to the shop to buy a piece that you can print at home so um w- with many of these things where you have you have the hype and then you have the uh the the, the the pushback when when things don't come as quickly um it would feel with 3d printers that that we got very excited about it and and yet we don't all have one in in every house yet so so i guess w- What's happened? Why don't we have these super cool 3D printers in our in our homes yet to, to print these pieces that we need when we break the random bit on the hoover or something?
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of 3D printers out there that your amateur enthusiasts can buy um, for use in the, in the domestic setting, if you like. But you are right, Simon, they haven't really become as widespread as you might have expected considering the hype there was a, a few years ago. I suppose one of the reasons behind that is that You don't just have the 3d printer right you also need the design structure around it and indeed to print complex geometries and structures you'll need maybe more advanced design packages which are typically very costly and require powerful computation to run kind of smoothly and indeed efficiently Um, and then in terms of materials you're pretty limited in the home setting to printing with i suppose polymer polymeric or polymer based materials and the reason is, is printing with, let's say, metals is actually very, very dangerous because they're in powder form, which have an, ex- an explosive risk, and um, which is not great in a home. And the temperatures needed to to print with those metals is typically much higher, which have to melt and fuse a um, a metal as opposed to a polymer, which are typically extruded from rolls. Um, and they melt at a far lower temperature. So there are a couple of, of limitations. Um, <clears throat> I suppose from an R&D perspective where the industry is moving now um, it's very much embraced polymer printing and we have a very good handle on that and we're now moving or making great strides in additive manufacturing of metallic and ceramic structures and um, and indeed um, biological structures actually so there's very much an emerging area of interest specifically in the academic space um in for example printing of scaffolds for producing bone graft, let's say um so like really interesting and, and innovative work um going on but but yeah as, as you say simon it hasn't really become <clears throat> the domestic appliance like your kettle and um, that you might have, have, have expected but you never know in the future it could be the case where you just think of a design and there's a cognitive link with your mind and the 3d printer and it uses its ai to understand what you want and, and, and even how to print it and um, wouldn't that be amazing
0: yeah exactly yeah I mean, I mean in some ways um this whole phase we're in where you have to use your thumbs to type in messages to a, a an interface that we hold that's currently a smartphone is is a bit retrograde and like you say once you can uh, jump to the thoughts that you want being put down then yeah um another thing you mentioned right is about um materials and so um with with rare with rare earth materials there's been a lot of discussion that from asteroids the moon mars there are potentially uh, there's the potential that that we could start to source minerals on 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 other bodies, planets and satellites that, that that are not very common on Earth and, and the, the, the potential, one, the value of, of those things because they're so rare on Earth, and two, the potential for what we could do um, could also be very um, uh, opening up of boundaries. So um, what are your thoughts on on those aspects in terms of minerals that, that we may be able to mine f- from off-Earth locations?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point, Simon. So, so mining our planetary neighbours for for stuff that we don't have. Um, but I suppose there will be exotic materials that are stable and accessible and maybe even more plentiful housed within extraterrestrial bodies. Um, and I can certainly appreciate the appetite to bring them back to Earth for really bespoke applications in the likes of, you can think of magnetism, superconductivity, you can think of semiconductor applications and, and even optics. Um, I suppose the big challenges are how do we mine it and how do we get it back here, right? Um, so how do we get the mining infrastructure there? Um, our galactic dumper truck and our digger, so to speak. How do we actually mine the material? Um, and how can we brought, be be kind of brought brought back to Earth? I suppose. Um, look, it's certainly a very sci-fi futuristic endeavor, but who knows with the huge developments in jet propulsion and indeed more manned bases being, being set up in orbit, extraterrestrial mining could come to fruition kind of a lot lot sooner than anyway. might think, actually. It could be 100 years, or or indeed it could, it could be only 50 years away. Um, But I suppose, just from a more generic perspective, when you think of mining, you kind of think of the hundreds of, of kilograms of material. You imagine the dumper truck filled, filled with rubble going to be processed. But I suppose it could be just more... Um, on the microgram level where you're shipping we're mining and shipping back these very, very small quantums of material that are very difficult to synthesize in the lab on earth or access on, on earth or are too costly to mine or produce um, on earth. So so it could be the case that it's even more economically favorable or sustainable to mine these kind of funky exotic materials. On another planet or entity in space um, as opposed to investing the resources on earth because it's not sustainable and it costs too much that's actually that's actually a crazy thought it might be cheaper and more sustainable to go to space and get what we need um geez i'd, I'd actually love to see the maths on that uh,
0: yeah. And I guess I'm asking because the, you know the Japanese have successfully landed on a couple of asteroids. And mm. you know, uh, it's generally seen that the Chinese are probably quite close to establishing a permanent base on the moon. Um, mm. So you start to have these um off-earth presences. So, yeah, look, I mean, and I guess it's just interesting to toggle it back to you because, I mean, you know, um with your clients and 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 who you work with, everyone works with what you have around. But at the same time, if often, it's like black holes. Uh, These things are conceived uh, theoretically before they're discovered. And then after the theoretical conception, you then build the experiment to go and look for things. And with quite a few things, you know, and again with the Higgs boson and stuff, you know, we conceived what we were looking for before we knew that it actually existed. So I I guess I'm just uh, wondering, uh, it it must be quite nice for you because you're both here in the present, but you're also uh, working with people that could be pushing the boundaries going forwards
1: big time simon and it's an interesting topic of of having a catalogue of things that we expect to exist kind of theoretically and a potential that they may already exist externally to earth on another planet let's say where the chemistry and and the physical properties um they might allow for the generation and the production of kind of such exotic materials that we only have a theoretical handle on um on on earth so to speak um, there is actually an interesting piece around that time and so if we think of superconducting materials there is a library of theoretical superconducting materials that that we might expect to exist um but don't exist as yet or we haven't proven it um that don't have to be super cooled to operate so they may be stable a function at room temperatures which is a big boon for for superconductivity um so could these materials that are very, very difficult to synthesize or, or find here, um, could they be readily available extraterrestrially, so, so to speak, if we can just develop um, the, the technology kind of t- to get it out and get it back, right? Um, so, look, it's a very interesting thought and, and topic for sure.
0: <laughs> yes. I guess one we can come back to. So look uh, Owen, it's been a, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh how can people learn more about you and your work?
1: It was great to talk to you too, Simon. So if anybody is interested in, in what we do in KPMG's RD Incentives practice, check out the links that are that are attached to, to this interview. Um, so there's lots of information on our RD tax incentives website so about the RD tax credits. With the knowledge development box and about um the national grant service and, and how we can help and assist you in in applying for those grants and um, in terms of myself if you google search owen mccarthy you can find my linkedin page and kind of check out the work i did in my academic life and kind of what i do now and um, i also have a profile on the kpmg um website and as do my colleagues so you can kind of read all about us if, if you're interested um as, as I said earlier on, if you have any questions around the R&D tax credit or any R&D incentives, so get in touch, send us an email, give, give us a call. We're always happy to engage. Awesome.
0: Uh, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much, Owen.
1: Great. Thanks for your time, Simon. Talk to you soon.